We are a group of friends bound by our appreciation for liberty and good podcasting. Free-minded thinkers from all walks of life, our values come together with one accord to discuss the common culture and news of the day, along with whatever random crap is going on in our lives. Welcome to the Union of the Unknowns. Union of the Unknowns. We're back. We got a boys cast. Very excited yeah. for this one. Uh, this is Tunes from New Hampshire. Uh, let me introduce the panel. We got Keel Thor. Hey. Mr. Terry. Hello. And, and our esteemed guest, Mr. Jay Noon. Howdy. Glad to have you. Okay. Um, so real quick, I, I've heard your story a little bit. Um, you're, you're going through some legal issues up here in New Hampshire. And uh, <clears throat> I, I am very interested in it personally because I, I'm inter interested in the homeschool movement. I'm interested in uh, taking back freedom from, from the powers that be. But can you real quick give us an update on where you're at with your situation? So, uh, uh, March 16th or March 18th of 2022, my wife left our two-year-old daughter safely strapped in a running car. March, you know, Concord, New Hampshire, there was still snow banks on the ground. You know, it wasn't, it was a warm day in the sixties while well, she ran into a store to, um, do a, uh, a quick exchange <clears throat> about 20 minutes. We figure she comes back out and there's a Karen and a couple of cops. Uh, there by the car. They ask her, my wife, for her name and um, give her a hard time for a few minutes. They want the names and date of birth of the kids. She wouldn't give them any of that information. She told them her name. She did tell him, uh, tell the cop her date of birth, uh, which I suggest never doing. Um, but anyways, uh, <clears throat> the a um, uh, couple week, couple days later, we start getting phone calls from a DCYF social worker. Um, demanding that um, they come inspect our house and interview our daughter. And then uh, about three weeks after this, uh, the local police want to talk to us. And four days in a row, they come to the house every day. Finally, uh, the chief of police and I get together. Uh, we went down to we go to a local breakfast place about once a month, maybe twice a month. I said, we're going to breakfast at the pancake house down the road. Come meet us there. We met with the guy. We chatted with him for like an hour and a half. He seems like a really good dude. And um, in this uh, order, they write in the order of the social worker that uh, one of the reasons that they you know, need to inspect the premises and interview our daughter and have uh, access to our medical records um, was that we are that we are anti-government free stater um, and live on a compound with lookouts uh, and uh, are dangerous. And the way that the uh, social worker framed this in her affidavit, she says that Henniker Police Department, I'm on Henniker, New Hampshire. She says Henniker Police Department told her all of this stuff. Well, the chief of police was very unhappy that that was in a document because he didn't say that to anybody and neither did any of his uh, employees, any, any of the officers. <clears throat> Going forward, um, this uh, court order from family court calls for a police officer, child protection service worker, um, or a uh, child protection parole officer to, um, you know, inspect the house and interview the daughter. 
And my wife was getting pretty anxious because if you just internet search NH, New Hampshire, DCYF, Division of Children, Youth and Families, NH, DCYF settlements, as in court settlements, you will see that hundreds of millions of dollars have been paid out uh, by DCYF for injuring children, families and youths uh, in lawsuits. And this is um, uh, best best number I got is three hundred million dollars in the past decade has been paid out. And this was told to me by um, uh, a state representative guy named uh, J.R. Hole. Uh, that's the number he came up with because he's investigating DCYF himself. Um, <clears throat> anyways, and that's just New Hampshire. This is New Hampshire. Yeah. So you're going to yeah. you're going to see like states like California. It's like probably a trillion dollars in the past decade. There's tremendous. California is really bad. New York's really bad. Um, anyways, uh, so my wife, uh, so the, um, uh, the cop, one cop was real nice to my wife. One was, you know, kind of a, you know, bad cop, good cop deal they had going on there. The air conditioning was on in the car. Kids were all good. So, um, uh, the, I tell the chief of police, they go, Hey, um, you know, to, to, in the best interest of justice, I will let you and two of your officers, uh, and these are three, two, so three cops in total I dealt with. I, th- uh, I thought these guys were pretty decent people. Um, they had, uh, you know, good credentials. They were mothers or fathers. They're still with their significant others. You know, they had kids, family men, and, and one, one's a woman. Um, so I says, if you guys want to do this assessment, DCYF assessment, uh, which says a police officer can do this, um, you can interview my, my, da- my daughter uh, without me. I'm going to have a friend videotape it and uh get audio and uh they're like yeah that's cool we'll do that and i said and you can also inspect my house um and uh and the interview at the time we had well we just got pigs again but we had a bunch of pigs like 25 pigs and i was just gonna have my two-year-old daughter take the cops over and feed the pigs and the cops can ask them whatever questions they want and maybe the cops will help the kid feed the pigs so they're cool with that dcyf responds back with "Uh, you guys aren't qualified you can't do that and uh, then they DCYF escalates it. They go to um, get a contempt order against my wife and I, which basically means uh, that if we don't allow them to, uh, in, you know, inspect the premises and interview my daughter alone, and the contempt order requires that we sign consent forms. Um, so this is what DC, anybody who deals with child protective services, child protective services has to obtain jurisdiction somehow. There's two ways they obtain it. One, you take a benefit from the from the state, so you're on welfare of some sort, uh, or Medicare, or you know, or, me, or state issued uh, health care, um, or you're using like the school system. I think actually is a jurisdictional trap if you put them in public schools. We don't do any of that. The other way you get in under their jurisdiction is to sign a consent form, and the only way that they will interview you, your daughter alone, and go into the house is if you sign these release forms, which I never actually saw these release forms. But they exist because other people have told me about it. Um, so anyways, the same social worker who lied in the first affidavit on the order to, uh, to, to the assessment order, they call it, um, Melissa Coombs, uh, who it doesn't have any biological children. She's married to a woman and the woman actually works for the state of New Hampshire in a correctional, uh, you know, she's a correctional officer or something. And um, so anyways, the... Uh, uh the contempt order uh is is given to this um to the chief of police and they're like we're gonna um you know uh this is what we're doing now we got a contempt order 
and the chief of police reads a contempt order and there's a part of contempt order that's inaccurate. Um, that meeting that I had with the chief of police at the restaurant, the social workers were in the parking lot. I didn't know that. That kind of really upset my wife. Um, but that's, you know, par for the course with these guys. Can I just hop in real quick, Jay? Um, just because I know a little bit more of the backstory. Uh, yeah. It sounds like your your police, the chief at least, is uh, is on your side. It sounds like he's a very good man. Um, and I just wanted to inject that real yeah. quick just so everybody understands the context that, that oh. the police are, are backing you up. Yeah, yeah, the local police are backing me up. Uh, the social workers wanted to get the state police involved and the sheriff involved. And they had in some emails I got from from the uh, chief of police through a, um, or from the uh, police through a no, right to no request. Uh, they suggest using these other agencies that are that are good at dealing with dangerous situations. Now, they had no indicator of dangerous with me at all, other than, you know, um, I'm a homeschooler. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a free stater. Uh, <clears throat> but, you know, all those people are dangerous, according to the radical left who work in government. Uh, best I can tell. Anyways, um, so the chief of police ended up going to uh, family court with a motion to intervene, and he got the um, and he did a motion to vacate the uh, contempt charge because she had lied again about stuff, saying that the police said it. She actually, the social worker, claimed in her affidavit that I let the kids run around in the parking lot of this restaurant, totally like not even you know supervised. Which, you know, what, what happened is um, the, the, my daughter and I would go outside because she's a two year old and she's, you know, we've been sitting there talking with the chief. So I follow her out there. We'd walk around and this restaurant's like 150 feet off the road. The parking lot's out back. It's a dirt parking lot. And it was basically later in the day. The restaurant was closed the last uh, half an hour we were there. So um, the chief ended up going in on, on, I believe it was April 20th, 27th, 2022 doing an emergent an expedited um, motion to intervene uh, to get rid of the uh, contempt order, which happened that morning. It was the first thing heard that morning. And then the, the very next dated document I have is the same day. And it's a warrant issued for my wife's arrest for childhood endangerment. Um, in fact, I could send you guys over uh, uh, a copy of the warrant. And if you read it, um, it's basically praising how, how well my wife takes care of the kid. And, and it says that the, um, uh, that, you know, the air conditioning was on. I could tell she knew how to take care of her kids. The kids looked clean. They, you know, they did not seem distressed. You know, she had a six month old baby with her that went in the store and, and she left a two year old that had just fallen asleep for, you know, her hour nap, you know, in, you know, in the car while she ran in the store and had the car parked right in front of the doors of the store. Um, and it's in Concord, New Hampshire, this TJ Maxx. But if you've ever been there, it's like the smallest TJ Maxx ever. And it wasn't like it was in some downtown or some, you know, big mall. It was basically on a strip of farmland that had been turned into a, um, you know, a little shopping center. So there was a TJ Maxx. There's a Abishan Hardware. And I believe a pizza place. Um, so it's not like it was a huge, you know, it's not like it was downtown. You know, it's not like she left, you know, left the kid on Kensington Street in Philadelphia, which, you know would be a bad place maybe, but, <laughs> but anyways, um, so, and, and, and then we went to a bench, we had a bench trial. So in New Hampshire on a class uh, B misdemeanor, you get a bench trial, which is in your statutory, you know, district court. Um, and there's, you know, no jury. And then if you get convicted, you appeal. So we have all the video of that trial, that entire video was taken. It's on freekeen.com. Um, it's on um, Odyssey. It's a two hour and 20 minute video. If anybody wants to watch the video, 
at about two hours, I asked the state's witness um, if uh, they have any evidence that the New Hampshire code or constitution apply to my wife. And he said no. Um, but it was kind of comical because they don't have any evidence that their that their laws apply. You can they, they believe they do, but they just don't. But also we got the cop to say that my uh, the witness to say that my daughter was not in any danger. And they still found my wife guilty of child endangerment in this, what I'm going to call a show cause hearing. If it was Massachusetts, it'd be a show cause hearing, um, which is basically what this, you know, hearing is. So now we have a sentencing hearing on the 20, on the 17th of August, and um, we're going to uh, appeal it to a jury trial. So we'll get a jury trial in the Superior Court is what you appeal it to. And so we get to go all over again. Um, I had a lot of support in the courtroom. It was jam-packed with people. If you watch the video uh, on freekeen.com, you'll see, um, you know, there was 30, 40 people in the courtroom. It was pretty good. So that's the update as of now. If anybody else is interested in hearing Jay speak more uh, long form, that was a very good uh, Spark Notes. But I heard you speak on Free Talk Live uh, a couple of episodes about the situation, and, and that's how I got my backstory. But that, I think that was a very good uh quick synopsis of it um i'm curious <clears throat> as much as you'd like to share uh what do you expect in the next trial and and what's your strategy as much as you'd like to share i don't want to poke and prod too too hard but so um we're going to document the, this entire process and we've documented it a lot so other people i really want this particular thing to be an awareness uh for you know how people can defend themselves so what we're going to do at trial when we first get first as soon as we get the name of the prosecutor which which should be on the august 17th date is we're going to call the prosecutor on the phone and we're going to ask him quite simply you know what evidence does he rely on that the new hampshire code and constitution apply because there's a lot of procedural stuff that happens in court cases that you have to take care of first first off how does a plaintiff get a right to bring a lawsuit against me because uh, anytime you try suing the state um, for anything or bringing any kind of charge against anybody, you a, 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 as a man, you have to prove you have a right that you've been injured. You have to prove that there's been a whatever, a property damage, a contract violation, um, you know, uh, um, you know, you know, bodily injury, death, something. Um, and the state sort of, uh, you know, they created all these you know, uh, legal fictions, you know, if you, so you look up the word person is just a legal fiction. That's all it is. Um, it's not a living man or a woman. Um, so they create all these fictions, then they create all these rules for these fictions. So this, you know, statutory, you know, legislative, you know, codes, rules, ordinate or ordinances, regulations, those are all for legal fictions or, uh, maybe therefore people exercising, you know, copyright, uh, or, you know, uh, using, um, uh, intellectual property law, possibly in, incorrectly. I know if I put on a Harry Potter cape and I went and I did Harry Potter tricks at birthday parties for money, um, the state would be bringing charges against me, you know, for, for the uh, intellectual property holder of uh, Harry Potter. I kind of think that's what's really going on here is uh, everybody's operating under intellectual property. And I believe that intellectual property is a, is, is a date of birth, most specifically having to be specific to the Gregorian uh, calendar. If you just internet search Gregorian calendar, Wikipedia does a really good write up of it. It was, you know, basically started in the 18 in the 1750s in, in the, uh, you know, 
the colonies. It was implemented like uh, in the 50, late 1500s in uh, Europe. And it basically, it's a work, it's an intellectual property of the um, <clears throat> Vatican Church. Uh, Pope Gregory the 15th created the Gregorian calendar. You'll see uh, like James Madison, or um, Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin and uh, George Washington have different birthdays. Well, they have a birthday on a Greg Gregorian calendar, and then they have a born day, as Thomas Jefferson refers to it, on the Julian calendar. So I always stress people that, you know, stop using this Gregorian timeline and answering to a, to a date of birth. Um, you know, every time you have a police interaction, they really want the date of birth. And if they don't get it out of you, you don't consent to it. It seems like their whole case falls apart, at least in my um, you know experience. And I have a lot of experience of doing uh, essentially like no driver's license activism for, you know, 15 years. Um, you know, I, when I was hauling horses and stuff like that, I never had any Department of Agricultural, you know, licenses and stuff in Massachusetts. And we taught riding lessons. And so we had a lot of experience with this stuff. And like the data, data birth thing was a huge hang up for them. Anyways, uh, so we're going to ask them simply to prove their case, to prove they have jurisdiction, to prove they have a right to prosecute my wife. Uh, just quite simply, we're going to do our best to settle this without it being in court. So we will talk to the plaintiff on the phone and we will ask them, what evidence, what evidence do you rely on? This is sort of a Mark Stevens thing. I don't know if you guys ever heard of Mark Stevens, um, but it's uh, if you look him up, uh, markstevens.net was his website. He doesn't really do much anymore, but he does do some YouTube uh, streams now and then. And he's got pretty good stuff. So he calls them calls of shame where he calls IRS employees and prosecutors and just ask them. Do you believe that the code and constitution of New Hampshire apply to me because I'm simply on the land we call New Hampshire? Yes, I do. They say, OK, what evidence do you rely on? And they have nothing. They just say it does. In fact, there's one call of shame where a prosecutor says, well, we have the guns and we have the police. That's all the evidence we need. And uh, that was a California um, uh, revenue collection board or something guy. Uh, but, yeah, Mark Stevens got some pretty good stuff. So I have about 15 threads that I want to pull on. Um, I don't know if anybody else has anything. Well, I, I want to say that uh, I, I feel uh, I feel angry uh, about your situation there. It's uh, it's I don't know. I'm oh, flabbergasted yeah. that they would continue to, to yep. harass you this far, you know? Yep. So so let me uh, add a little bit more, uh, you know, gas to your fire, uh, Keith Lore. Uh, Kelthor, right? Kielthor or Kielthor. Okay. Um, so <clears throat> at the same exact time in town, uh, I'm telling some locals about this. Um, you know, right at our local all in one, it's a market down the road. Good place. You can actually buy gasoline with Bitcoin there. Um, and, uh, they are, uh, so I'm there chatting and the guy says to me, he goes, he goes, you know, there's, um, at least two families I'm aware of that DCYF um, has been being reported to, reported several times these two families have been reported and nothing's happening with these kids at this, at, in these two families. So this guy actually works in like the school district. Um, I'm not gonna say what part of the school district he works in, but he works here in a school district. So he kind of has firsthand knowledge and the kids are basically getting on, getting on the bus or they're coming to school. They're like, we're hungry. They, they smell like pee, they smell like poop. Uh, they're like often dirty and they're kind of like troublesome kids anyway. So it turns out uh, the parents of both of the kids are somewhat of some kind of addict of some sort. 
I know the guy told me one kid, the mother is definitely a heroin addict and that, and DCYF is not doing anything about it. They're not going there. They're, uh, they've, they visited them once. And, uh, and as I'm telling him about this, he goes, he goes, so how old is your, is your son? I said, oh, he's six months old. What's he look like? So I show him a picture and I sent you guys some pictures of my kids farming or I send them to, uh, I guess it's Rachel or Raquel or something, um, whoever emailed with anyways. And then my daughter, you know, she's two, but both my kids are like super healthy. They're totally unvaccinated. You know, my, my wife and I have very clean diets. Um, and, uh, this guy, uh, was like the third guy to tell me that they want your kids because they're very valuable to adopt out. And all these social workers um, are, are uh, either are LGBTQ, he said, and they want uh, to find kids for, for, for their families and their other lesbian and gay friends um, that are, you know, to adopt for. And this is, um, you know, so I actually got to hire a private investigator to work on this because the particular social worker, Melissa Coombs, um, happens to uh, have her name was on a um, adoption agency out of Bow, New Hampshire, when we were first like trying to find out what we could about her. And the, the adoption agency was removed from the uh, Better Business Bureau for ethical violations, uh, a Better Business Bureau rating. So, oh, and the Karen that called this in. Uh, there's a couple more details about this. My wife's car clearly is the car of a freedom-minded individual. So it has a Health Freedom New Hampshire sticker on the back. Uh, Tunes, I don't know if you're f- familiar with Health Freedom New Hampshire. So what happened here in New Hampshire is <clears throat> uh, there has been at least a dozen people we know of. Actually, it's, a, it's 15 is the count that I can confirm that are members of Health Freedom New Hampshire that have been targeted by um, the Concord City Police, the Concord City Prosecutor's Office, and New Hampshire DCYF. So this would be um, three parents that were arrested um, because they let their kids go to a playground during the lockdown. It was uh, Rochelle Kelly, Tyler Workman, and I forget Pamela's last name, but they let their kids play at a park in Concord, and they had caution tape around the entrance to the park, so they just went in there and played. Nobody was there. It was like you know, early 2020 spring. And they all got warrants for their arrest for disorderly conduct. And they all got investigated by um, DCYF. And they were all um, uh, very active members of Health Freedom New Hampshire. So Health Freedom New Hampshire did a lot of organized, a lot of protests. They, you know, like I got this shirt that says, say no to the prick. And it shows, you know, a picture of Bill Gates and, you know, the hypodermic needle, um, all kinds of, they did a lot of that outreach, uh, organizing and, it was the first time I ever see seen a lot of women in the um, in the liberty movement, the freedom movement, because it was like 75 percent moms. You know, they, they really pissed off the mama bears with all this nonsense in 2020. So um, other so the other guy is uh, uh, J.R. Hole. He's state representative uh, Hopkinton, New Hampshire, basically my neighbor. He's got four kids because he gave his kids ivermectrin in 2021. Um, three months later, the kid goes to an ER for something unrelated. One of his sons, 14 year old, and they're sending the police to his house with an order to immediately remove all of his children from the house and take them into custody, um, over ivermectin three months previous. But this is because of how dumb these radical leftist, you know, pediatrician, for example, they think ivermectin is dangerous because, you know, the internet told them, uh, cause Biden told them or whatever, and, or, you know. 
the biggest danger ivermectin was was to the profits of the uh, vaccine manufacturers so uh and then there's these other guys the new hampshire noble nine they were all arrested basically for saying amen um at a um governor's council meeting because new hampshire was under so much pressure basically from health freedom new hampshire health freedom new hampshire and other freedom new hampshire freedom groups not to take any federal covid money so new hampshire was the only state that rejected this round of covid money and it was a governor's council that was pushed to do it and the governor was really pissed we do have a governor here that calls himself a republican but the only thing he's decent on is gun rights everything else he pretty much sucks on uh so anyways those nine people were arrested at a governor at a at, at, at a meeting for being disrupted at all charge of disorderly conduct and um three of them so far have been found not guilty um or no two of them one of them was found guilty but he's appealing it actually found guilty by the same judge my wife was found guilty it's kind of a joke actually but these guys were charged with disorderly conduct for saying amen um uh at a uh, governor's council meeting and that was all health freedom new hampshire and there's more but i just don't have all those details to really lay out we were targeting. i'd like to uh just reinforce that we can't forget how crazy life was a couple of years back. Um, I find myself even just like think, thinking that that was just a dream, you know, uh, it was crazy for a very long time. And, and we, we cannot forget how, how, how they treated us during that period. Oh, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you wanted to hop in Terry, but I have a whole lot of questions. <laughs> Uh, I, I just wanted to say something quickly. I, I think you've covered it really, Jay. I mean, underline what you said. It was a horrendous experience. And uh, it does sound like your wife was targeted. And given that the, the cops and the, the Karen were on the scene pretty quickly, do you think she was even being tailed? Because it doesn't, you know, it sounds a bit of a coincidence. Oh. They were just driving by at, the, at that time. The Karen in this case is very peculiar, peculiar. So she is a career veteran of the government. She works in the in the Merrimack County prosecutor's office as a secretary. And before that, she was a dispatcher for a police department. What's real funny about her, her name is um, Donna Bennett. And we tried looking up and seeing who she was. And she's married to a William Bennett. And it's this guy looks like about her age, maybe in the 60s on Facebook. She shows up to court with a black guy that his name is Mark Bennett and that she claims Mark Bennett is her husband. But on, on Facebook, it's the same woman, um, Donna Barnett. Uh, I think Barnett. Yeah, not Bar Barnett or Bennett. I forget. Barnett, I believe it is. But so this social worker and these cops and the Karen, I've all known each other. And based on the fact that the Karen has a a different husband than what is on Facebook. And did that husband like take her name? Cause there's like a lot of goofy relationship stuff going on here. What I really need to hire a, um, a private investigator to do is figure out the relationship between these social workers and these um, uh, and, and the Karen and, and, and the cops. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I'm sure she knows exactly who health freedom, New Hampshire is. And also, you know, the way I'm finding, uh, so they just pulled, ro rolled up, you know, in the parking lot allegedly, and then the car was there and they saw it running or whatever is what they said and, you know, and noticed there was kids in it because it was running. 
there's like little blinds. You can't even really see the kids in the car unless you really like look. Um, oh, and another thing to throw out here, the only bureaucrat involved, I hate even calling a guy a bureaucrat because like he's such a good dude, is uh, this Matthew French, the Henniker chief of police. He was the only government agent involved in this that had a fan that had kids so far that I can tell. I have not. Um, I don't know if Donna uh, Barnett has any kids. And then also there's a whole bunch of in the emails that I got to look at where the chief of police, yeah, three days in, you know, a, a week into this, the chief of police is like, there is no neglect and there is no abuse. I've been to their farm several times there. You know, the kids are clean. You know, he gave like a really good report. Um, on my YouTube page, jnoon.com, there's a 17 minute video of me reading his affidavit um, that he put into the uh, court rebutting, you know, the lies of the social workers. But he also said that there was no neglect and abuse. And the whole purpose of DCYF is to make sure there's no neglect or abuse. And a police officer can, can certify that. And he basically did to these guys. But there was like four or five people behind the scenes um, just in these emails that were involved. And there's even a particular lawyer who happens to be a total leftist scumbag. His name is um, Ross, um, or not uh, uh, Ross something, but he's the one who 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 basically, you know, wrote the um, uh, the contempt charge, who submitted it, and uh, and he also did the same exact thing in uh, uh, in in or he didn't do a contempt charge. He threatened to put J.R. Hole in contempt for not giving up his kids. But the problem is, is these orders uh, in, in uh, family court orders, they don't mention the parent's name that, the, that they have to do something. They order a police officer or child protection service worker. They didn't order Jay or my wife, Shallon, to do anything in these orders. So there's already been a court, Supreme Court in New Hampshire has ruled that these orders, that you can't file a contempt charge on these orders because in order for someone to be in contempt, they have to at first be ordered to do something. So we are never ordered to do anything. Um, and Ross McLeod is the guy's name. He is a lawyer for DCYF um, that uh, already knows this because he's been involved with cases where he's been shut down on doing this particular action. And the thing with DCYF, we can't look into anything at DCYF. It is all sealed off. It is the uh, perfect opportunity for a bad actor to get involved and literally go steal children. While we're, while we're here, um, I just wanted to hammer home how important it is. And <clears throat> I'm kind of uh, kicking myself in the ass for, for even thinking about it, how important local law enforcement is. Um, I should be more involved in my own town. I, I <clears throat> My town doesn't even have a, a, a police station. It's in the next town over we share police with them we're that rural but uh it is very important that you have local law enforcement on your side and on the side of uh good and honorable men uh, you know you, i can tell you are a good and honorable man and uh it goes to show that your police chief being on your side is also a good and honorable man have you heard? Yes, he is. Have you heard of the Thick Red Line project? I have not. So the Thick Red Line project is something that was uh, done by a guy named um, um, Howard Lichman. His pen name is Etienne Debreu. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so he actually sent me like three days before uh, I ran into the chief of police a couple years ago. He sent me a uh, about five years ago, four years ago. He uh, sent me a. Um, 
an envelope full of these thick red line cards. I don't have one on me, but it's basically a two part business card front and back. It says thick red line and it explains that, you know, police should honor the Constitution. The Constitution comes before the statutes. Um, you know, I don't remember all the stuff, but it basically so. I, I went to go vote and I was open carrying and I had my two year old, you know, uh, I guess my six month old daughter with me at the time going to vote. And I had her, uh, um, I was just holding her. We went in to vote and I was, you know, open carrying and we can do that here in town hall and stuff. And uh, when I was done voting, the chief of police was there and I wanted, I went up to him and shook his hand and said, Hey, I want to meet you and say hi. And I, in a couple of weeks previous to this, I had met one of his uh, lieutenants or his captain, uh, they had at a town um, board meet, a town meeting, um, like board of selectmen meeting, because they wanted to do mask mandating. And I stood up and explained. I had articles and presentation all prepared for these board members. On first off, the CDC numbers are a lie, and here's how they're a lie. You know, um, ninety percent of the people they're claiming that died from COVID had four to five. You know, had these uh, comorbidities. You know, they had something else going on, and you know, so you know, so there may be the numbers from COVID maybe are this, you know, 8% right here, but they're not recording any flu numbers. We have no flu numbers. So it's basically flu best I can tell. And, you know, I also brought up, you know, scenario 201 uh, to these guys, how, you know, these, you know, Bill Gates is planning on this. He's investing heavily. And, you know, I got laughed at by a bunch of people and, uh, and I saw one of them about three weeks ago. I, I, I saw this one, one particular woman who was laughing at what I was saying. I go, you know, Bill Gates made how many hundreds of millions of dollars Bill Gates made off of uh, his investments in Moderna and Pfizer, right? Um, you know, he bought the, the, he bought the biggest, most expensive yacht in the world just recently because um, <laughs> he can do that stuff. Anyways, um, the the uh, guy the the police didn't want to do any masking uh, enforcement or mandate because they just didn't want to. He's just going to cause a you know. And the, but the thing is, is like the cops, the three the cops I got to know here, they're all family people. You know, they just want this world to be a better place. It's rural America. Um, they don't have an agenda. <clears throat> and um, so anyways, I, but introducing that thick red line card, you know, to the to the chief of police five years ago, I believe had, you know, at least something to do with it. You know, where I presented myself as, you know, someone who expects them to, you know, uh, uh, you know abide by the Constitution and protect the rights. And that's what he told me. Uh, one of the first talks, he goes, he goes, you're a citizen in my town. And therefore I'm, I'm you know, my job is to protect you. And these people lied and I'm not happy about it. Great. That's very beautiful to hear. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, uh, hopeful that there are some good ones still out there. Um, so I've had more police interactions probably than anybody else I've ever met. And I'll tell you right now, 90% of my police interactions have been positive. Um, I believe that actually uh, a lot of the cops are actually good. Uh, they just don't know who they're dealing with. And it is, it is way better for you to go approach your local police, your local sheriff uh, on good circumstances than it is on, um, you know, uh, th them pulling you over for some reason. It really helps if they know who you are. So, for example, one of the things I said to him uh, when I met him at the uh, voting uh, polls was I said, hey, uh, you know, I live on the south end of town. And um, and they're like, oh, yeah, we're familiar with your gun, gun range. Some of the neighbors call when you guys are shooting guns. 
So I have a, a gun church event that we host here. My uh, one of my best friends is a former special forces guy, Silver Dave, and he's uh, and he basically uh, takes care of a gun church event that we do one one Sunday a month. Uh, I think we're going to do one the last Sunday of the month this month. Um, <clears throat> but anyways, uh, I said, hey, I got a livestock trailer. I says, if there's any. Well, first I said, if there was any cows or pigs loose around that area, please call me right away. Um, and, and I said, if they're not mine and you can't find who they belong, I said, you could call me and I'll at least help you round them up. We can get them in a trailer, you know, throw a couple round pen panels in a stock trailer, go down they're cruising, you know, and you just make a funnel. If you got three or four guys, they'll just walk in a trailer. A lot of times when there's cattle loose, you just show up with a trailer and open the door and they're just so happy to get in there because they recognize that as, you know, a, a safe place. At least mine do. And I've, you know, I've done that several times now. So he was like happy I offered that to him. And, um, you know, but there's a big difference between, you know, and also like <laughs> the three cops in town that I, that I got to know, they all like have a fire wood stove. They all split firewood. You know, all these yuppie bureaucrats in, 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 in uh, social services, you know, those guys, most of those guys are corporate people. They're desk jockeys. They're not into doing anything you know, uh, real or like, you know, um, you know, physical. So it's, it's, it's a cultural difference. And in this country, we have a massive cultural divide. You know, we have blue cities and we have red country, red rural area. I don't believe there's really any blue or red states because it's everywhere, whether it's New York or it's, or it's New Hampshire, you just get three minutes outside of any city and it's Trump signs. It's, you know, pickup trucks and rednecks. And that's everywhere in America that I've been. <clears throat> yep agree with that 100 yeah. <laughs> percent anybody else here, before i yeah, sorry i'm, in, yeah. I'm in georgia i was just gonna add to I'm, I'm down here in georgia so yeah you got atlanta which has a hell of a sprawl but you can it doesn't take much to get outside of that blue area right and atlanta's one of these cities i was there 20 years ago for a summer um Cumming, Georgia is where we, my uncle lived. And, uh, um, and I remember going to Atlanta, you'd see these, you know, big buildings, banks. And then, you know, then it was like a lot that was like two acres. And, you know, the lady had like a beautiful garden and a bunch of goats and some sheep. And she's like, yep, the city just grew up around my homestead. You know, and she'd been there for 50 years. The same thing I've seen that Phoenix, Denver, um, same stuff that, that you don't see that in Boston. Um, but, uh, Concord's like that. Even the city of Concord has got this little city area and it's all farms just outside of Concord. It's actually really good. I mean, river bottom. Yeah. Atlanta kind of used to be like a, a red city almost. Uh, but it's only been in know, the past 10, 10, so years, 10, 20 years that it's just gone stark, stark blue. Um, well, but I, still, I believe those red roots in there. I believe a lot of the reason for that is. You know, who in their right mind wants to live in a city? So I, this is what I get into in my investing in our posterity stuff is uh, how the Internet devices are rewiring the kids' brains. Um, and what's happening is the part of the Internet, the part of the brain that the Internet device um, stimulates is the addiction, addiction start part of the brain. This is why they call Internet devices cocaine, uh, all the professionals. But you don't see this anywhere in, in, in corporate media. There's nothing about this. So what happens is the frontal lobe is getting wired to the, uh, to, the, to the rest of the brain during this first six years of a child's life. This is why parents really need to pay attention these first six years. Um, it is the most important time 
that you and you should really be spending all of that with your kids. But what happens is the frontal lobe gets wired to the rage part of the brain, the addiction part of the brain, because that's where the neurological pathways are being made while the child is watching an internet device because their mom or dad are using it as a pacifier and a babysitter. And, and it's not being, and the kid, and, and, and these apps say that these three to nine year old kids are using these internet, uh, internet devices seven to nine hours a day. This is uh, metadata from uh, child um, inter, you know, internet apps for kids. And um, this is uh, from an NIH report, 2016 and 2021. So, but my kids don't use internet devices. In fact, I have a whole um, homeschool co-op that comes to my house once a week and there's 18 to 25 kids that show up sometimes. And none of those kids are on internet devices um, because their parents are very aware. And they've been also, you know, been hearing me talk about it for five years. They've, they've known me for a while. Um, but what's happening to people in the city um, if you're born and raised in a city and, and your parents put an internet device in front of you for those, um, you know, uh, frontal lobe formation years, um, now the frontal lobe's wired to that addiction part of the brain, not the sensory part of the brain, because the kids aren't out crawling around in the grass and playing in the dirt and feeding pigs and chickens like mine are, um, or like kids should be. They're, they're getting, um, you know, they're getting amused uh, instead of working. And so what happens is now they're, they no longer have the ability to engage in logic and reasoning. And when that frontal lobe turns on to activate logic and reasoning, it's wired to the addiction part of the brain, which is also the part of the brain that gets stimulated during rage. So this is why we have a lot of these inner city youths um, who, uh, you know, are like, uh, try asking them to explain why there's more than two genders. They don't use logic and rage. They tell you you're a racist. They tell you you're a bigot. Um, so those people are staying in the cities. They're not going out into the country and people are getting sick of the cities, working class people, people who don't want to get robbed, people who don't want their kids being taught, you know, critical race theory and, you know, teach your second year old how to like do your buddy in the butt, um, you know, kind of stuff, which is being taught in the schools outside of Boston, Mass in Boston, Massachusetts right now. Second graders are being taught these things, the books that they're, you know, being instructed to read, you know, how to like, I forget what the, one book is, how to be gay or something. And uh, I could be wrong about that. Uh, but we did some show prep on this on Free Talk Live a while ago. We never got around to it. But basically the book was instruct, instructing children how to, or instructing people, but children specifically, how to hook up on, get on like Grinder, which I guess is a gay hookup app. And like instruction to do that. I don't know if the book's called How to Be Gay, but I believe... I could be wrong about that. I don't, I wasn't planning on talking about that, but anyways, um, so the cities are really a bad place. So what's happening is anyone who has the ability is leaving the cities. And I think if you're not leaving the cities and you have a family and, and, and you love, uh, uh, and you're into conservative values that you're, you, you're lazy. And, and I think if your values are conservative, they're, I don't know what you city urban liberal type values, if that's what they are, then it's probably because you're some kind of parasite. Either you're working a government job or you're collecting welfare. And and the thing is, is another thing too, everybody I've known in my life that got on welfare was able to really maximize their drug use. Um, so, you know, health and human services is literally the one who's killing all of the people who are overdosing on drugs. Just ask any EMT if uh, the guy that they're giving Narcan to or the dead body they're picking up that overdosed uh, is on welfare and they will tell you, well, they all have eat. They all have an EBT card, electronic benefits. That's your food stamps because the EMTs, at least all the EMTs I've talked to, and I know a whole bunch of them 
for years, that, those are the guys that are overdosing on drugs because there's, you know, two kinds of drug addicts, the government sponsored one. And then you got these like hardworking construction guys that are drug addicts, too. I mean, and I tell people all the time, some of the most productive people I know are straight up drug addicts. And that's how they function. And I mean, I know paving crews and framing crews and roofing crews where like half the guys are literally on heroin all the time. And they show up and they do their job and nobody would even know it except for like I used to work for this paving outfit uh, doing heavy, doing repair for them, on site repair. And I caught one of their guys shooting up one day right in a truck and he's a CDL truck driver. And this was four years ago. And um, and he works for a big company and they had like 45 semi, you know, tractor, um, uh, 45 truck units with, you know, semis or dump trucks. They had like nine pavers. And I'm like, Oh, sorry. He's like, no, no, it's cool. I'm like, does your boss know? He goes, I don't know how he doesn't know, but he goes, he goes, if I, he goes, if I smoke weed and I get pulled over and I got to do a whiz quiz, I fail. He goes, this doesn't show up on a whiz quiz. And, 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 and I talked to uh, the foreman and he's like, yeah, half the guys here are doing it. He goes, that guy right there in that truck, he's drinking. And, he, and, and the only reason I know he's drinking is because he's doing a good job backing up to the paver. But this is in all the big corporate farms. You know, like with corporate farming right now, the, I, I work on a big crop production farm in Colorado. One of the big things that's happening with them guys is they're getting in their tractors 7 o'clock in the morning. And because they all have autopilot, you don't even have to drive them anymore. All you got to do is pick up your implement at the end of the row, push a button and turn the tractor around. Well, they're cracking their beers or doing their, you know, um, you know, blackberry brandy and Coca-Cola or whatever they drink. That was one guy eight o'clock in the morning. And, you know, that stuff, if, if you're we've, we, we've had it too good in America and there's bad times is going to bring a lot of strong men. And that's my main thing I'm working on right now is uh, building building a strong future, because right now, uh, you know, all the people in the cities are basically destroyed. And, the, and and a lot of people in rural America are just working so hard to pay the taxes. They don't really even know what's going on. And they're letting their kids go to public schools and use Internet devices. So so before we get on to the future, I, I just want to touch on uh, the city rural divide and, and see if you guys have any thoughts on. Um, <clears throat> is there an, an anonymity issue with the cities because you you live you're just you're just a cog in the machine you're you're one of 1000 in your your apartment building uh you don't know your neighbors you don't know your your anybody you don't know your your store clerk that that pours your coffee uh there's that anonymity aspect that you can be a, a really bad person and, and have no 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 consequence because you don't know anybody who cares if i'm an asshole to to the guy down the street uh, I think that's that's another issue with the internet as well. You know, <clears throat> there's the you can be an anonymous person and and just sling shit all day, and nobody's gonna say, "Hey, bud, yeah, I'm the other guy." You know, do you want to yep. talk about it? Um, I think that's a huge thing with the the city and rural divide. Uh, I've personally said to my wife that I'll never live in a place where I don't wave to the people that I drive by, um, and that's a huge huge thing for me personally. I don't know if anybody has thoughts on that. Oh yeah, I do. <laughs> but you guys go. I've been talking a bunch. Well, I, I can I can uh, uh, agree with that. Uh, I think that that's been a big thing for a long time. The kind of disintegration of the of the local of the neighborhood of the you know it's all been everything is being pushed upward and being controlled by the the 
the higher tier and and everything below is being washed away and so you lose that sense of community that i think is central to you know the american way of life in the classic sense i think you're right it's that's that's a big uh, yeah. part of why this this society is crumbling and, and I'll add something to that because a lot of that's been engineered as well, isn't it? Um, you know, they've brought in people from other cultures and moved people around the, and the, like uh, in America, you know, people, putting people from the south up north and vice versa and, you know, breaking up sort of traditional cultures and neighbourhoods. And that's been happening all over Europe as well. And, you know, I was brought up in a big city and you just don't really have that sense of community that you would do in a rural area, not now in cities. Maybe you used to, you know, when there were, there was, you know, cities were more divided into communities where people in communities had something in common with each other. And now you're just, it's like Toons was saying, you're just stranded in a load of strangers, really. So that means you don't really have that commitment to helping people out or you're not so bothered about ripping someone off because you're probably never going to see them again. But, you know, in a small community, you're, you, you, You've got to watch out for that because it's kind of do as you would be done by. I I believe also that, you know, so my grandparents were born in New York City, my uh, dad's parents in 1932. They grew up in the Great Depression. And um, there was a lot of respect in the city uh, back in the day. So, for example, my grandfather, I remember him telling me a story about there was a shortcut through a neighborhood, but you didn't take that shortcut at night because you didn't live in that neighborhood at night. And that was considered disrespectful to go into a neighborhood where you weren't recognized just because it would alert the locals and they would be like, Hey, what are you doing? Why are you here? If they don't recognize you. So like the walk home or the bicycle ride home was like an extra, I don't know, whatever. It was way longer. And one of his goals, I can remember he wanted to be done with something so he could be through this neighborhood before dark. And he wasn't worried about, getting beat up or anything by a gang it was why are you here and they would be upset that you know you don't live in this neighborhood you got no business being here is all it was because they would think it's kids up to mischief so that is totally irrelevant in the cities now and my grandfather and grandmother they knew um, almost all the shop owners almost all the people around um, but also you know in 1933 and 1934 or in the 19 or 1930s Every kid that was able-bodied was hustling. They were wanting to sell newspapers. They were my my uh, grandfather. I should learn this the other day from uh, his sister. At seven years old, he was helping the uh, guy deliver milk because the milk truck or the milk wagon was drawn by horses, and he loved horses. So he would just go hang with this guy because these horses came through town. And uh, basically, I guess my grand my my uh, mother was my great grandmother was not happy about this until. My grandfather started coming home with a, you know, a, a gallon of milk every single day for free because a guy would just give him a, a gallon of milk or a bottle of milk. I don't know what it was. And uh, but that was a big deal in the city to get that, you know, farm fresh milk every single day. And, my, you know, but the kids wanted to hustle. And today, you know, and, and, you know, a lot of the culture when I was growing up was the city kids wanted to be, you know, um, one of these rappers, you know, gangster rappers, you know, uh, and, and they wanted, and that thug life was very much, um, romanticized by the media, by, you know, MTV, you know, these guys. So now you, you're wondering why all the boys in the cities are, you know, wanting to sling drugs and they're wanting to, 
you know, make their Glocks fully automatic so they can't hit their target. And they want to, um, you know, uh, and they want to slap women around and they want to refer to them as, you know, bees and hoes because that's what the culture taught them growing up. And like, you know, and I can remember seeing people listening to this stuff with their kids around. I mean, you know, the ice cube from the 90s is not for children, <laughs> you know, Ooh, for example. No <laughs> so there's been a lot. So, and that didn't really happen in rural America. And, you know, most of rural America 40 years ago, everyone worked. Now the internet devices are are all in rural America, and so a lot of young kids are not getting their dopamine hits from work. They're getting their dopamine hits from um, from the internet. Um, and uh, yeah, my kids, they, it's seven seven o'clock in the morning. They, if I'm if we're not doing something, my son is like, "Daddy, work!" and he's grabbing my boots and he wants to go outside and feed pigs and cows because you know that's what they get their dopamine hit from. Yeah. If anybody doesn't have another path to go down, I would like to touch on the uh, posterity for our children aspect that you've spoken on, Jay. I don't know if anybody else has something to. No, go ahead. No, that's where, that's where we're going to go. Uh, so <clears throat> I, I'm with you, Jay. I have chickens. I have pigs. I, uh, I hope to have lamb someday. Um, that's both a choice because of nutrition and the food system, but also because I'm a father and I want to raise my children a certain way. Um, is that the only way that we go forward or are we just crazy rednecks in the woods with our tinfoil hats? So I met a guy at Weir's Beach last weekend and he lives in Peabody, Massachusetts in a um, homeowner association um, and he has uh, a um, basically like an eighth of an acre is what he, he didn't even know how much land he had. It was like an eighth of an acre is, is what I'm in, you know, gathering. And he was sort of like, oh, it goes from here to there over to there. I'm like, oh, it's like an eighth of an acre. Well, he's an accountant. And uh, his wife grew up on a farm and really wants chickens. And she looked into it. They can actually have chickens. They can have six hens. Um, and, uh, and there's also a permit. But like nobody gets denied a permit. And basically, if you're like letting your chickens run in your neighbor's yard, your neighbor doesn't like it, they can re revoke the permit. So these guys live in Peabody, Mass, which is like the city, and um, and they can have chickens. And I was like, just get six chickens. Uh, I sent them a link to a two hundred or thirty dollar chicken coop tractor thing uh, that you can buy, and uh, you just build it, and then you drag that thing in the garage in the wintertime when it's nasty cold and it's really easy on the chickens. You bring it out during the day um and uh because the thing is is we need to do some kind of work with the kids right from day one my daughter was eight months old when she started gathering the eggs herself now let me preface let me t explain that a little more because that sounds crazy she was on my chest in a chest carrier and i would carry her facing out most of the time and i would open up my chicken coop and i'd start grabbing the eggs putting them in the egg carton and at eight months old, she just started grabbing the eggs by herself. But even before then, I'd open that up and she'd get, you know, all excited about that. So I encourage city people. Yeah, you can totally have some chickens. Um, but can, I, can I hop in real quick? Uh, my daughter's 10 months and she is obsessed with chickens. There's nothing that she gets more excited about <laughs> than, than the chickens. Um, uh, Tunes, if you're uh, close, I don't know how far from Henniker you are, but uh, we should, um, you should uh, email me directly after I should our Tuesday um, um, 
homeschool co-op here is really awesome and it's a bunch of little kids from ones just crawling to seven years old and we'll have to link up soon i'm, I'm not far yeah yeah so <clears throat> so anyways and the other thing too is like i, I so i met this this uh, couple they got three kids they're, they're they got tons of student debt they're they're living in a condo um and uh definitely can't have uh, any kind of like garden boxes outside, any of that stuff. It's a real strict place. Um, and so I said to them, I go, and they're in Florida. They live not too far from where my grandmother was. And I said to them, uh, I go, so there's this farm in Loxahatchee, which is not too far away from where they were. I think they were, um, well, I can't remember their town. And I kind of know the guy and he's got cows and he's like you know he milks like six cows he's retired he just kind of fools around and he raises a few beefers and he's got like 20 acres of land and um i go just why don't you go over there and start getting to know him and, and these people had three kids that were all like really ambitious kids to work and they don't use internet devices and they do a lot of activities with them uh and uh she got back to me like three months later she sends me a text message hey this is so and so we met and uh We've gone to the farm now six times. We've gone every Saturday for the past six weeks, and it's the best thing we've ever done. My kids, uh, we're going to start. Uh, um, we're going to start doing a homeschool program so we can go to the farm three days a week. And uh, my kids are getting good at weeding, and they get to all the strawberries they want to eat, and all the um, whatever they, you know, um, the guy grows all kinds of produce, and and the guy who runs the place is just so happy that there's some you know i think the oldest kid is 12 and the youngest one is four in his family he was just excited that there was people kids that actually wanted to do this work and uh and now they have a really good relationship with that farmer these kids are learning uh work they're getting a dopamine hit from it they're getting rewarded and when there's a financial reset because the world says we don't like us dollars um these people will be able to go get food because now they are a very high value to that farmer because they know how to work and they know the job so that's what my biggest suggestion yeah. is to uh, city families that can't actually have chickens or even gardens, you know, for that. Yeah, we're coming up onto the hour, but, uh, you know, we don't need to stop at the hour. If you, if yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I can keep going. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to refill my water. But... Yeah. Uh, what's your next thread? So um, I, I'm still very interested when you spoke about the calendar, Mr. Noon. Okay. Uh, I have, uh, um, I've, I've, I'm aware that the Gregorian calendar was adopted later on in the timeline. And I'm just curious, uh, I, there's so many directions that I could go here. Um, I'm, I'm curious, in general, what do you think about the timeline that we are sold? I don't know if that's too vague. Uh, no, no, no. I can, I can, um, I've been getting good at summing this up. I was just looking for a, um, for a business card here. Let me fix my camera a little bit. Uh, so the guy I learned of this stuff from, his name is Curtis Richard Collinback. He has a website, CurtisRichardCollinback.xyz. I was just looking for one of my business cards because that's on the back of my business card. I was just going to hold it up with the camera. So it was all spelled correctly. Anyways, um, so I've been doing this courtroom battle stuff literally since I was 17 years old. The first time I got arrested for operating or 15, I think, well, 15, I guess, riding my dirt bike down the road, 
And my dad said, please do not run to cops. Just stop and just listen to them. Don't resist and be polite because they're psychopaths and they will kill you. Um, and uh, we had a kid in town uh, when my dad was a teenager. The cops literally just run him over and killed him on his dirt bike. And there was massive lawsuits and all kinds of stuff. Anyways, I get pulled over and we go to court and we ask the court for, you know, um, you know, uh, basically uh, the instrument that um, compelled us to follow the Massachusetts general laws. And we went around about some things and we talked about the Constitution and and the judge was like, well, the Constitution doesn't matter. The Constitution doesn't apply. This is not, you know, we asked him what jurisdiction is the court function. And the judge actually said a statutory jurisdiction. It wasn't a constitutional court. This is a Palmer District Court. Um, we were all shocked that they were so honest about this stuff because generally they, they won't say. So anyways, um, the case was ultimately dismissed uh, for lack of evidence because they had no evidence that their motor vehicle code applied to me. They couldn't produce the evidence the motor vehicle code applied. And what we kept asking for was the instrument uh, that bears my signature where I agree to um, abide by the Massachusetts General Laws Chapter 90 Motor Vehicle Code. That's, that's you know, what we're charged with. So <clears throat> going forward, I had, you know, several times gotten pulled over by cops. And even when I had a driver's license, I would tell them, well, I'm not operating, you know, uh, uh, in, in, in a commercial for hire capacity as a corporation because the international commerce clause has, you know, gives the state jurisdiction over um, states, uh, Indian tribes and foreigners engaging in commerce. Well, I'm not a state, I'm not an Indian tribe, I'm not a foreigner. So this is what I would, you know, say to these guys. So anyways, I got arrested, all kinds of things, you know, charged with driving while suspended or without a license, charged for not giving them a license. I, I would say to them, if I give you that document, Will you use, use it as evidence against me in a court of law? And a cop would say, yes, I would. Then I would say, well, I'm exercising my constitutionally secured rights not to incriminate myself or furnish evidence against myself. Secured under the 14th of the Massachusetts Constitution and the 5th under the United States, uh, the Constitution for the United States of America. And then I would start, every time I would bring up the Constitution and constitutional stuff to any of these um, uh, judges, they would tell me it doesn't matter. In fact, I got threatened with contempt if I for mentioning the constitution in front of a jury <clears throat> then um and i was pretty good at getting these things either not guilties at the jury getting them uh dismissed at the judge basically all on procedure uh very rarely we ever get to any facts we're just all on procedure and then i um i got real and then um uh, but every time i asked about this constitution uh, stuff uh, like I was threatened with contempt actually several times uh, by one particular judge in multiple cases. Oh, you're going to talk about the Constitution. You're going to sit in a jail cell for 30 days. Um, Constitution doesn't apply here. I, you know, we've discussed this before. How many more times do I have to tell you? Well, it took me, you know, till I was 30 years old to really actually understand that because, you know, our brains don't start to develop until we're 26. And uh, there has to be a lot said for maturity. It's also why probably the voting age should be 26, not 18. But anyways, <clears throat> the um, these uh, uh, so I started uh, going about my court stuff with uh, what evidence do you have that I'm using any intellectual property or copyright or trademark? And um, I had one judge say to me once, what is your date of birth? And I said to him, 
Uh, do I have to answer that question correctly? If I answer that question falsely, would that be considered perjury? He says, yes, you must answer the question correctly. I says, okay, well, I just want to let you know I am unable to answer that question correctly. The people who told me about the date of birth are, comp are, are compulsive liars and have lied to me on several occasions. And the examples I can cite, they lied to me about this fictional character called the Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, and um, the Tooth Fairy. I said, and uh, the judge goes, you don't need to go on. So you are stating that you are not uh, aware of what your date of birth is. I, I says, yeah, I go, actually, I don't even think I have a date of birth. So he says, okay, go sit down. And then they call my case again. And, and the judge says, oh, this is being dismissed. You, you, you can leave. You're good. So then what I did <clears throat> going forward, I, I didn't even study the Richard Curtis, Richard Collenbach stuff yet, but going forward, um, I would start, I would say to a cop on the side of the road, I don't have a date of birth. And uh, so I get arrested one day. The last time I got arrested was in 2012 in uh, Springfield, Massachusetts by the state police. And um, they have this document that says Joseph Francis Noon. So that's the, the, the name they have on the birth documents for me. Uh, 7-20-1979. And I, I, I told the guy, I go, that's not me. That's a name on a piece of paper that is, um, you know, a dead entity. That is this name on a birth certificate. So also there's two birth documents that are created with when you're born. There's a certificate of live birth that has your name, first letter, uppercase, and the rest of them lowercase. And then there's a totally different document called a birth certificate, which has a name in all capital letters. According to Curtis Richard Collenbach, and I can't find anybody to rebut this. I've asked midwives. I've asked um, uh, OBGYNs. I asked uh, the, the, uh, the lady who did the uh, C-section on my wife about this. I've asked uh, a whole bunch of people, uh, people who worked in the Bureau of Vital Statistics to people at Vital Statistics. The best answer I got was from a town clerk. Um, but anyways, you go to your local town clerk and you can either get the certificate of live birth or a date of birth. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, a birth certificate. And um, but what Curtis Richard Collenbach claims, and I haven't gone down his rabbit rabbit hole to like really check this as thoroughly as he did, that the certificate of live birth is all the biological identifiers of the actual baby, the baby that was born. And that's the name, first letter, uppercase, uh, 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 rest of them, lowercase. Um, and then the uh, birth certificate with the name in all caps is all the biological identifiers of the afterbirth of the placenta. So it's the weight of the placenta. And then they use the eye color and the hair color, uh, you know, from the mom or, or the, or, or, or the baby. Now I have both of these documents side by side, um, because I got them both from the same place, uh, which is the city clerk, the, uh, uh, clerk of court in Ware, Massachusetts, where I was born. But one of them, my friend went in there and got it and they won't give you, they won't give so they'll, if you yourself go in and ask for your own birth certificate, they actually give you the certificate of live birth certified copy. That, but if you go in and ask for my birth certificate, they will actually give you the birth certificate, which has a name in all capital letters. And it's like a totally different document. Um, and I think you, you, you could go get your birth document from the town and then you could ask them if there's a second one, if somebody comes and gets it, that's not you. So 
Vital Statistics should have both of these on copy also. I actually got removed from Vital Statistics in Boston, Massachusetts about 15 years ago because I, I wanted to see the original thing that they pulled out of the filing cabinet. I, I, they got like these vaulted filing cabinets everywhere in there. And um, when he showed it to me, there was like four different um, carbon copies. And I want, and on each um, carbon copy, there was only one carbon copy left. And it was the one with the wedding signature of the um, doctor and everything else on it was imprinted. And then it still had the binder column on, on the side. And it was four other pieces. Like, you know, in the old school printers, they had the reels with the holes in it and you perforated. It was that kind of paper. And he said, this is the original archive. I says, oh, where are the rest of them? So I don't know if you guys have heard the stories that like the Federal Reserve gets one of these and creates all kinds of money. Um, this is how they print money out of thin air is based on birth certificates or one of the reasons the other way. Other one is people swiping their cards or, you know, writing checks or um, uh, getting loans is how money is created out of thin air. Um, I've never went down that rabbit hole, how the Federal Reserve, how the Federal Reserve gets your birth certificate. But anyways, there was several carbon copies. There was one on top that wasn't there, at least. And there was two more below. And I wanted those documents. I wanted to know what those are. And they're like, and they were like, totally the guys like whole demeanor just went sour as soon as I started asking for them. And then uh, basically, uh, it was these guys who were security, they were playing closed. And they're like, um, either you got to leave or we're going to remove you. So I just left. Um, and I actually have a video of that. Um, that was, I believe, 2010. Uh, <clears throat> but anyways, when I started going into court and claiming I don't have a, 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 a um, let me think about this here, a Gregorian born day, and I am not a Gregorian, I'm not um, using that intellectual property that the state may be charged to enforce uh, with respect to the Vatican Church or that particular calendar, if such intellectual property exists, I don't really know. Um, and uh, they're like, oh, well, if you don't have a birthday, we can't even charge you. Now, this particular case with my wife and my daughter that I, we opened up the show with, there in one of these documents, it says that the um, cop could not get the um, warrant unless he had a date of birth for, for the daughter. And uh, so someone in, in social services came up with a birth document, a birth certificate to refer to it as in their um, police narrative, uh, police report um as uh baby spalding because we wouldn't give the hospital their name in fact that was our first um problem with dcyf is when cyprus was born they actually called security on us because i wouldn't do any vaccines i wouldn't let them take a blood test and i did not want them footprinting her and they just footprinted her anyways now i don't believe it would have been appropriate for me to just grab my you know two minute old baby out of the arms of a nurse while she's footprinting her I said, please don't do that. I do not want you to do that. I do not want, you know, the land of the state to be the first thing my daughter steps on. Because that's basically if what I, that footprint means. If I can hop in real quick. Uh, we went through a uh, birth cottage, midwives, and uh, we were trying to avoid that hospital experience. And I've heard um, that the hospital experience is pretty poor. So for any of the young guns uh, still um, in childbearing age, <clears throat> in aspiration uh please consider birth cottages um midwives uh doing it outside of the hospital it's uh 
I, I've never experienced a hospital birth, but the midwives were were unbelievable, and uh, I can't imagine the hospital is, from what I've heard, anything but a horror story. But that's yeah, an aside. Uh, I didn't mean to yeah. uh, derail you. Yeah, the hospital sucks. Uh, we we had a midwife, but she dumped us. Um, uh, and then the second midwife we had was probably not quite as well qualified as the first midwife. But the first midwife, you know, what, what, what they do is they take on a bunch of patients. They take on a bunch of clients. I think they overbook it sort of purposely to keep themselves busy. But what they start doing is they start thinning it out towards the end. And they say, oh, your blood pressure is too high or for this reason – you know, I'm going to refer you to an OBGYN. And then we had to go to a hospital. And, yeah, the hospital was pretty annoying. Um, although I got to tell you, the second time we went to the hospital, first time was February 2020. The second time we went uh, was, you know, 19 months later. And uh, that what it was. My son was born, same hospital, because my wife was breached. We couldn't do a, you know, had to do a C-section again. Uh, but also she was, you know, 43 years old with the second kid. Um 41 with the first, uh, we, um, uh, the nurse, one nurse was like, I remember you and you are getting a birth certificate for your, for, 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 for this baby. And it was, she was just nasty. Um, she could definitely tell she was very woke, you know, very proud to wear her mask, never came off her face. Uh, and then there was other nurses that came and they're like, Oh, I remember you, how you guys doing? You know, I, I love free talk live. Cause you know, I tell them about what I'm doing. I, you know, I was actually, when our first daughter was born, we were trying to do, we were planning on doing a vaccine education summit uh, the first weekend in June of 2020, but that all got derailed due to the scamdemic. So I invited all the doctors and nurses to the vaccine education summit. And I got two responses. Uh, when no one else was around, um, they were really, really sweet and nice and thankful. Um, half, like, like maybe a third of the nurses, a third of them were very neutral and definitely one third of them were really pissed that I was doing a uh, vaccine education summit. And, uh, you know, I had business cards with all the stuff and you could watch the, the summit from 2019 that they did and another one from 2017. Um, and, and they put that I was an anti-vaxxer that we were anti-vaxxers in the paperwork, uh, too. Um, when we got discharged, you saw that in there. Um, and I had, uh, you know, mentioned to the uh, hospital staff that was kind of like, you know, um, saying in 1928 Germany that someone's Jewish, uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I'm I'm always amazed at the animosity toward people who, not even necessarily anti-vax, but just you know, don't want to jump on the the next latest thing as if right. it's you know. But uh, I, we had our child in a hospital, did the regular normie thing, and uh, it was a positive experience. I mean, the, the people that were in the delivery room during the actual process, they were all great. The nurses were very polite and friendly and the doctor was great and everything. When we went up to the recovery, they had like an apartment, you know, up on the different floor uh, where we were there for a, a couple of days after the, the birth. And those people were not as polite as the other yeah. set of people. I mean, they were short with us um you know i i i didn't uh i didn't leave and and i so i stayed there with my wife and my new baby and the the nurses there wanted to take the baby into the the big room with the other babies but we were like well no we want to we'll keep her here in our little apartment and we'll 
we'll keep her in like well you know she's gonna cry and everything and I, we're like okay that's fine we're, we know that babies are gonna cry at night and all that thing and we just stayed there with the baby and we you know everything they i, I think they resented the fact that we wanted to keep the baby next to us yes they the do first, first couple of days and uh, but on the other hand, the, the delivery people, they were great. You know, they, as soon as the baby came out, they just, uh, plopped her on top of my wife and then they just left and gave us the room for a good hour or two to just kind of commune, you know, yeah. and we really appreciated that. But, uh, on the other side, it was like, okay, time to go. You know, your clock is ticking. You guys can't stay here for, you know, and. Well, give us a minute, you know, and I, 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 I do want to bring up the uh, economics of it, um, where hospitals are heavily subsidized by insurance. And it's the whole uh, medical industrial complex where you're uh, a cog in the wheel and the, the quicker you get off the conveyor belt, the, the faster they get paid. Where <clears throat> my experience with the midwives, I know my wife is very uh, impressed by them and we plan to use their services if we're blessed again. Uh, it's uh, completely opposite. We're not conveyor belt. We are a person, and we are um, just it's it, it's just the the treat us like a neighbor versus treat us like a, a number on a piece of paper. Yeah, there, there's a big financial incentive for them to uh, put the baby in that room with the other babies because uh, they can whack the insurance company or you more. And um, even with DCYF, one of the reasons that uh, DCYF did not want the police doing the assessment with me is because they actually get like a $6,000 payout from the federal government each assessment they do. And, uh, oh, that's another thing about DCYF. DCYF social workers in New Hampshire are taught at Granite State University a course called Maximizing Revenue for DCYF. I just found out about this about a month ago. It's an actual course they teach because they get money each time they do an assessment, they get money each time they um, do an assessment on each kid, each time they have to go back and do like, so they have all these layers of stuff they can do to get money from the federal government. And this comes from uh, well-known uh, pedophile, Bill Clinton, um, you know, 27 trips to uh, Epstein Island that we know about. So, you know, there's more like a hundred trips um, or more. Um, and, uh, in fact, the guy who just, uh, you know, that was secretary of staff or chief of staff at the white house during the Clinton years, just got Clinton cited, uh, not too long ago. Uh, the guy that basically was saying, oh yeah, I signed Jeffrey Epstein in several times. I forget his name, but, um, that's called the child care act of 1997. Um, and uh, Hillary Clinton is, you know, brags about that as her greatest accomplishment, getting the child care act passed. And what that does is it takes money from the social security account and it gives it to a state DCYF agent agencies. And one of the things I can tell you that state employees are encouraged to do is make sure there's more state employees working, replacing them in Massachusetts. It was every state employee that worked in the school system uh, needed to have four employees replace them in their, in, you know, basically in their sector for the purpose of keeping the pension uh, Ponzi scheme afloat. Um, this is how the uh, pensions get paid is by, you know, new blood putting money into the pay pensions is what I was told by a state employee. And this was something that was explained to her and explained to everyone else when she was in college. 
And, um, you know, she's um, a relative of mine, actually. And uh, that's, a, you know, career state employee. And uh, anyways, um, part of keeping that pension afloat for DCYF is getting all the federal money possible. So this makes sure that the current pension drawers are getting their pensions and also that there's future pensions for current employees that are not collecting a pension to draw. So there's a lot of incentive to get all this federal money to get kids in the adoption program because the feds give this give the state money and to give uh, and then also when they adopt them, other parents adopt them. There's all kinds of incentives and even above board, like my son, who's like a beautiful blonde haired, blue eyed boy at six months old, that's healthy. They're worth 50 grand uh, basically for um, an above board legal adoption from an adoption agency. But uh, if you're uh, someone who's looking to adopt, there's all the crack babies you want um, that, that are going to, you know, have all kinds of, you know, preemies and all kinds of issues. Um, you know, just sign the dot a lot and you can have it and the state will pay you, you know, $1,200 a month or whatever. Um, but there's just not a lot of healthy kids out there to adopt. And there's a huge segment of um, our culture now, which is mostly leftist. Not all people who are, you know, gay, lesbian or trans are leftist. In fact, I happen to know a lot of them that are libertarians um, and a lot that are on the right. But there's a lot of leftists that aren't that have either mutilated themselves or they're of the persuasion. They're not going to be a breeder. Um, uh, they still want kids. So, you know, there, there, there's a large market for them at all levels. And anytime DCYF can find a reason to intercept and snatch a kid, they're on top of it. There's no way for them to uh, forward their uh, religion without stealing other people's children. Because yeah. their religion is explicitly antinatalist. Yeah, the, the state itself is a religion. <laughs> you know, right. Cult is what it is. I city urban liberal yeah. type. Uh, the acronym is, <laughs> and uh, I don't know if you guys pay attention to Tim Pool at all, but he's been really hammering on this for a long time now and doing a doing a pretty good job. I need to help him out a little bit, I think. But um, yeah, there's definitely a, a, a big divide happening here. Um, I have one last thread we can pull on if anybody else wants to hop in uh all right jay so so we live in a very similar uh area and i i'm very pro-gun uh i carry uh when i'm not in massachusetts because i'm you know culturally uh i don't carry in massachusetts just because it's a culture thing um I, I know you said you open carry and uh, I respect the guys that do open carry, but I'm, I'm curious that um, uh, do, do you think it's better to be uh, quiet and armed rather than out loud and proud? Uh, this is kind of something that I've uh, thought about my own personal life. Um, I live in a very rural area, but we very rarely see guys open carrying. And uh, southern New Hampshire is now Massachusetts North. So um, I, I tend to lean on let's not draw attention to myself for unnecessary reasons, especially with a child. Uh, I think about, like, you know, uh, a person from the suburbs of Boston that moved to southern New Hampshire a year ago. 
and now they're going to call on me because I'm carrying on my hip, also carrying my daughter. Um, I'm curious what you think about the open carry versus uh, being the the quiet and armed. So, so I have a really uh, detailed response for that because I do both. I open and I conceal carry. So, <clears throat> for example, my open carry uh, uh, gun of choice is a is a Glock 17. And what I really like about the Glock 17 is uh, a few features. First thing is I have a Supra holster where it has a button to release. Are you familiar with how those work? Um, I see one guy shaking his head. I see uh, Kelthor shaking his head. So, okay, so you know how it works too, Tunes. Um, basically, you have to um, uh, push a button with your finger to remove uh, uh, the pistol. And so what I really like about uh, the Glock is it's my daily carry because I also use it to deal with um, rodents that I trap and catch that are like, you know, skunks and raccoons and stuff when I, that are getting into my chickens. I use it to dispatch pigs. Um, I uh, like that a Glock, um, you can literally drop it in the mud and then rinse it off in the pig water and still fire it, uh, not have to screw around. But my favorite thing about it is safety wise is that really good Supra holster that is essentially the safety device. The other thing I like about the Glock, if I'm in a situation to where I can't use it because either I took a bullet or for some reason I can't move and I have to pass it to someone else, um, they can just point it and shoot. Um, you know, not like, uh, you know, so I have another gun that I conceal carry that has a safety. Um, that is a, um, uh, is a, I call it like the Cadillac gun. It's like, you know, um, it's a really nice refined gun. You definitely don't want to drop it in the sand or the dirt. You, you wouldn't even want to try firing it after that. You would definitely want to break it down and deal with it. Um, but I don't have like a really good concealed carry that like, if I'm fooling around with my kids or I got a toddler on me, they, they, you know, th this gun has an exposed hammer that I, that I concealed carry. So, um, it's, uh, I just haven't found like a good concealed carry setup that I feel comfortable with around my kids that won't fall out that, you know, the hammer isn't going to get trapped, you know, that I don't like leaving that gun chambered to, to where like, you know, you should always have your gun chambered. Um, I've been attacked by a cow once. My, my, one of my best friends got mauled by a bull and he probably wouldn't be here today if he didn't have his Glock 19 chambered. And he put 16 rounds into that bull before it stopped pushing on him. Um, nine millimeter, obviously if you had a 45, it would have been a lot quicker. Uh, <clears throat> but anyways, so another reason, the reason I, so I used to only conceal carry because I'm originally from Massachusetts and I, I didn't like the idea of drawing any attention, but in 2017, I started landscaping in Manchester, New Hampshire, and I started landscaping for a bunch of uh, free staters, a company called uh, Ledgeview Realty. And what they do is they uh, help, they manage properties, they're a property management company, and they're free staters. Uh, Matthew and Brittany Ping own it. They're uh, good, good people. They got kids also. Um, and so I was working for those guys, mowing lawns. It was a really good gig. I was living in the city. And then my friend, my special forces friend, um, he was between jobs, Silver Dave, and he starts mowing lawns with me. I'm li when I moved out to Hanukkah, I wasn't in the city. I had to drive to the city and do these lawns, so I really needed a helper. So he came and helped me. But the problem is, is there was always like crackheads and hookers coming up to us asking us questions. There's, there's street hookers all over Manchester, New Hampshire. I mean, I'm pretty sure they're everywhere. Every city I've been to, I've seen these, I call them the walkers. Um, and they all look like heroin addicts and, you know, they all want to know if you get 
got money or time for company. Um, and uh, they'll do anything. Uh, they're, they're pretty um, open about it. And then I noticed you got, you know, basically sketchball dudes, um, you know, checking out my truck, seeing if they can grab a tool or something, you know, a bunch of landscaping equipment in the back of my truck. Now, both Silver Dave and I are concealed carrying. He says to me, he goes, oh, he goes, we should just open carry and they'll totally leave us alone. That's what we did in Afghanistan. He did. He was in Afghanistan. So the next day, I, I, uh, uh, Dave actually gave me this um, uh, drop leg holster uh, for my Glock 17. So I started carrying drop leg and Dave was carrying drop leg a Glock also. And when you're landscaping, a Glock's about the only gun you can get dirty. Um, in my opinion, maybe other ones are as reliable, but you're just covered in dust and dirt and leaves and grass. But nobody checked out our trucks. No prostitutes came up to us. And the people I was doing, uh, um, I, I was uh, mowing the lawns for, they're all free staters pretty much um, that either occupied these buildings or owned them. So, um, and as um, these free staters bought more of these building, more of these cheap properties in like 2017, 2018, 2019, now what started happening is they started renting them to people that were open carrying. And I started telling people, hey, now that we're, I'm open carrying, nobody approaches me. No prostitutes approach me because they think they think you're a cop, actually, is what. Uh, so one old lady, there's literally a prostitute that we met down there. She's like in her 60s. And that's what she was doing. And she was like, yeah, she's like, I'm hooked on heroin. That's what I do. And I maintain. And like she was actually a very pleasant lady to talk to. And she came up to us and, and uh, she said that everybody thought we were cops. And um, that and, uh, and we're like, oh, that's why they're, they're staying away. And, and Dave goes, see, I told you if it worked in Afghanistan, it will work in the city. And um, <clears throat> so what happened to this particular part of Manchester, New Hampshire, there is now like no no sketchballs around there. There's no prostitutes walking around. And so it's like Central Street, Manchester Street, um, Sycamore, not Sycamore, um, Pine. I, I can't remember the names, of all the streets. There's a couple of trees, trees, tree streets in there. And it was basically all like ghetto, like hoodlum, like, um, and, you know, like classic out on your street drug dealer with, you know, the hat on sideways and, you know, wearing the shorts with the pants down below your butt. Um, I don't, I mean, that's like a drug dealer thing in the city, I guess. And um, because of rap videos and prison culture. Um, and uh, those guys all sort of disappeared from this area because like seven or eight different, um, of these houses sort of in this block area are occupied by free staters and all these free staters are open carrying. And when they see people open carrying, they know those people got guns. They're, they're not going to be looking to steal from you. They uh, think you're cops. They don't want any heat. You know, a lot of these guys. So what has happened is that area has, uh, has sort of cleaned up and it's been like two years since I've actually counted up how many of these houses are owned by free staters. I know one of my friends bought the house right next to his house and another guy bought one right across the street because it came up for sale. So they've sort of reclaimed this neighborhood. And uh, you can tell because everything looks really nice and there's no trash on these streets and in this area. And you just don't see any street walkers. Um, and the other thing I've noticed about, I open carry drop leg often with the kids, especially when we go hiking and I wear the hiking backpack. And then I also open carry a, a hip holster with the kids and I've been open and carrying my kids entire life. So they like, no, not to touch daddy's gun. 
Um, they're, they're good about that. And, uh, the, you know, my three-year-old, you know, she has a gun of her own from her great grandpa and I've showed it to her and I told her that, um, well, I told her that her frontal lobe needs to make more neurological pathways to the brain before she can use the gun. And, um, and she goes, well, when's that going to happen? I'm so, well, it's different for everybody, but you know, you're going to get it. You're going to get a BB gun first. So, uh, so anyways, and the gun that grandpa gave her is a 1910, you know, 1022 bolt action kids gun that her great grandpa got when he was 10 years old for a birthday present in 1910. So anyways, uh, and, and that great grandpa ended up being a gunsmith. Uh, so my father-in-law has got a really beautiful gun collection. Um, <clears throat> so anyways, when I, another thing I've noticed about open carrying in uh, just public is, um, so one thing that I got to be aware of when I open carry is I can't get in a confrontation with somebody. I have to pull out, I have to draw on them. And I'm not interested in drawing on somebody in front of my kids. My, I don't carry ear pro. I don't carry your pro for my kids. Um, you know, it, it is going to be a very, very uh, desperate situation if I need to draw my gun with my kids. Obviously, I'd rather my kids have, you know, a, a loud bang in their ear than, you know, be a statistic, you know. Uh, but uh, one thing I've noticed about open carrying, um, like in the city and at places, is when there is confrontation, and uh, so I was at a place, I was actually at a, a bar, it was like an outdoor bar in Manchester a few years ago, and I did have my daughter with me. Um, uh, I think Shallon was pregnant with cash, and this guy started getting like real rowdy to like the girl he was with. And um, he saw my gun and looked at me, and he just like went and he sat down. And, um, and the girl comes up to me and goes, what would you say to him? I didn't say anything to him. I just, I just looked at him and, uh, uh, I think we may have lost him. He's not far north of me and we got thunderstorms going just for the uh, listeners and, and, and you guys, Manchester is a pretty rough part of town and, uh, yeah. it is known to be a, uh, tough area to live in i wouldn't be surprised if thunderstorms just kicked him yeah it could be uh i i got something to uh contribute to that conversation i was i open carry myself and uh not all the time but usually and uh yeah people like i'll go to for lunch for example i'll put my gun on because my workplace has a no guns inside the building policy which is a result of whatever bullshit contracts we have of our clients. Uh, so I respect that. But, you know, when I go to lunch, I'll, I'll put my gun on and I'll, you know, walk into Taco Bell or something. And there are there, people at the register will, will ask me, are you, are you a police officer? And I'm like, no, no, I'm just, just have a gun, <laughs> you know? Uh, but I, I noticed Terry, you look a little confused. I was, I didn't know if it was because he kept using the phrase, uh, uh, drop holster and uh, or drop leg holster. If you knew what that was or not, but it's uh, it's a yeah. holster. Oh, you do know what that is? No, 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 I don't. Oh, it's it's a holster. It's attached to your belt, uh, but the actual holster part where you put your gun in is down on your thigh. So it's when you see, you know, movies about uh, 
tactical guys going in through a building and you see their gun is down on their thigh, that's what that is. And so if you have one of those, oh, right. your gun is well out open. Everybody can see it. But it's it's kind of when you hang your hand down yeah, by your side, it's right next to your hand there. So it's uh, tactically more convenient to, to pull it up. So we lost you there, Jay. Yeah, where did you guys lose me at? Well, you were uh, continuing your conversation. I don't remember what the last thing you said was, but uh, maybe this is a good time to wrap. Uh, anyway, we've got about an hour and a half here. Yep, yeah, um, that's sounds like Sounds like there's some thunderstorms rolling into your area. Yeah. So, so the bottom line is, is I would rather conceal carry if um, with the kids, if I had a, um, <clears throat> if I had like a, a, a holster that was, like locked, like super, super good. Like, you know, it's not going to be pulled out or whatever, or, um, and I, and I, and I hang around a lot of kids and I also want to normalize, uh, gun, gun carrying. I completely agree. My, my issue is, is the cultural issue because I, I grew up in Massachusetts and, uh, you know, the people that are not familiar with firearms are very, uh, nervous, nervous around them. So I can tell you with kids and firearms, those people who are nervous around firearms, the, the, the young child in your arms is certainly a buffer. And I have found the conversations have went really good. And I invite I've, I've invited total randos to my gun range. Have you ever shot a gun before? And um, they're like, no. <clears throat> so I light up. So I go, oh, you know, uh, we got this AR-15 that my seven year old nephew shoots all the time. You know, he's, he's nine now. And um, they're like, oh, my God, that's an assault rifle. I said, actually, it's not. It's very controllable. And, um, and then it's a small uh, game rifle. Yeah. And uh, it, it, well, it, you know, it's, just, it's just a good general, you know, protection rifle. It's a you know, it's uh, and, and, and it's very inexpensive and there's parts everywhere for it. And, you know, it's just there's all kinds of it's just and it's, an, it's a tool. Um, you know, more people are killed by cars and guns. But the thing is, is uh I, I myself have converted a lot of people who were afraid to guns. Just, hey, come shoot with us or come to gun church and you can shoot. You know, people are there and let you shoot guns. And then, um, you know, somebody's uh, you know, like, you know, earthy, crunchy moms that are you know, like good intention. They're just afraid of guns because of their culture. You know, they come shoot some guns and, you know, two months later, they got an AR-15 and they got a, you know, a SIG P-2380. And, you know, and, and then they're wanting to, you know, buy a 1911 because it's cool, you know, and they're. You know, so and, and and I'm I'm really polite with people and I try not to offend them, uh, you know, because the thing is, is I want everyone to enjoy freedom, uh, including my neighbors, because I can't have freedom unless my neighbors have it. And uh, the only way and, and one. So New Hampshire, I believe, is the safest place in, in the United States statistically. And we have the least amount of guns, because if you do bad stuff in New Hampshire, like, you know, um, robbery or theft or try to hurt somebody, there's a really good chance you're just going to end up dead. Um, so what happens is uh, it's way easier to just drive 45 minutes south or an hour south and go do these things in Boston. Um, and that's why it all happens there. It doesn't mm. happen here. Sorry about the rooster in my background. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to say thank, thank you for joining us, Jay. Uh, I feel like I could have gone... A thousand different places with with what you've uh, what you've laid down, but uh, I wish you nothing but luck, uh, good fortune, and uh, 
it, it's pretty clear to me that you are in the right. So I, I, I hope uh, the law sees it that way. Well, yeah, thank you. And if people want to check out my uh, website, which has just got some stuff about man camp on it right now, uh, jnoon.com. That's J-A-Y-N-O-O-N-E.com. Um, and uh, man camp is something we could talk about later. Um, and it's uh, I'd, I'd be happy to do another podcast with you guys uh, at some point, specifically just on man camp and teaching kids how to you know, uh, be proud of doing something like blacksmithing. We did a bunch of blacksmithing at Porkfest. And there is uh, some cryptocurrency uh, QR codes on there. If anybody wanted to donate, donate. Um, I basically, yeah, I, I, I didn't make any money this Porkfest. I usually, I usually cook meat, but I wanted to uh, meat for my own cows and pigs. But I wanted to uh, really bring back the man camp thing and and we uh, we leveled up a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of kids' characters in his game of life is what one of the dads told me, just uh, letting them do some forging, uh, <laughs> uh, which was pretty awesome. It's great. That's that all sounds great. You know, we didn't great, really yeah. get to talk to you about uh, blacksmithing and stuff, but uh, I think that's a whole other podcast we could yes. talk to you about mm-hmm. stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I, I well, just want to you. reiterate what uh, Toon said. Uh, I wish you all the luck because, um, you know, it really sounds like you're being yeah. singled out for some pretty, pretty bad treatment by the state there. So uh, thank you. All right. If we're clear, uh, Union of the Unknowns.com, that's where you can find us. Uh, we've got, we're on Rockfin too. So. Check us out. Check out Jay Noon's website, and uh, we'll see you guys later. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of Union of the Unknowns. You can find new episodes every week on all your favorite podcasting networks. 